Hello and welcome back to the Sinobabble podcast. This week's episode is a direct continuation of last week's episode. In fact, we pick up the conversation exactly where we left off because I just cut the conversation and spliced it. So if you haven't listened to last week's podcast, you have to, otherwise you're not going to understand what's going on. So if you haven't listened to it yet, go back, listen to it, and then come back to this one. Okay, let's continue. Very rugged, harsh years for the party. Oh, yeah, and this is where um, Mao's military strategy changes from direct military confrontation to guerrilla warfare tactics, which he utilizes many, many times after that. And so um, you were talking about these extermination campaigns by the nationalists. The reason why the first four out of five extermination campaigns fail is because the communist force uses these guerrilla warfare tactics to draw the KMT force and then, you know, strike. So guerrilla warfare tactics, like, did actually work out um, for the CCP for a while in the Jiangsu Soviet. Until all the leaders from Shanghai have to leave, then come join Mao and comrades, right? Yeah, they come and spoil the party. Mao's having a great time being leader of Jiangxi and, you know, running things on his own terms. And then these highfalutin, hoity-toity Bolsheviks show up and they're like, you're doing this whole Marxism thing wrong, which he is, but... Yes, man, a lot of people have been kicked out of leadership at the time. So Chen Duxiu was kicked out in 1927. Ironically, even though Chen Duxiu adamantly opposes the First United Front, when it fails, he is blamed and sent packing. <laughs> and then Mao's old friend Li Li San becomes the general secretary. But Li Li San is blamed for, and I don't know why the CCP leadership is still trying to attempt revolutions in these cities, like even in 1930, but they are. So under Li Li San, the CCP leadership, which is still in Shanghai, attempts a series of revolutions in Wuhan, Nanchang, and Changsha. And the subsequent nationalist repression of the party is so harsh that even these underground cells in cities like Shanghai are forced to flee. This is where everyone kind of goes to the, not everybody goes to the Jiangsu Soviet, because I think there are about eight communist Soviets yeah, overall at this point. The yeah. Jiangsu one is just the biggest, yeah. right? But Li Li San is then blamed for the failure of these urban insurrections. He is relieved of his leadership position. And then you have Wang Ming and the 28 Bolsheviks. What a name. Yeah, so these are guys who have, ages ago, uh, went off to the USSR to study Marxism properly. And so they're kind of, they're more in line with the Comintern's thinking. They've been trained by actual Soviets, actual Bolsheviks, and they've also been given all of this, sort of like the framework for how to carry out a revolution. And because they've got this backing from the Comintern, they basically think they're the shit. Like, they want to come in and just start running things immediately. Oh, pretty much, yeah. They just think that collective agriculture should be a thing right away, whereas Mao is more <laughs> pragmatic yeah. and is like, look, guys, we're not going to get these peasants to support us unless we first give them what they've always wanted, which is their own land. We need to strip the land from the landlords and make all the peasants into middle peasants. The 28 Bolsheviks are, like, gunning it. They just want collective agriculture right away. I don't, I don't know. I, I guess Mal is, you know, he's got the practical experience because he is actually a peasant, whereas these guys are probably a bunch of city kids who've been on like a year abroad for the past 10 years. And, you know, they've probably been drinking Russian vodka half the time and, you know, 
partying as opposed to actually doing work. So Mel's been on the front lines and he sees the realities of the situation, whereas they've come in sort of with the ideology, but no practical experience. And I think this is where Mal gets most of his ideas for what later becomes one of his most famous essays, which is On Practice, which we'll talk about in a little while because he writes that at Yanan. But um, yeah, so Mal is like, actually, you need the practical experience. Like, I know you guys want direct warfare, but actually, from my experience, if we do direct warfare, we're all going to die. And if we force the peasants into collective agriculture, they're all going to hate us. Trust me, guys, I know. I've been here for a while. Exactly. So he's arguing with these guys the whole time. But because, again, he stands alone. And this is, I think we can talk a little bit about the great man theory here, because there are so many times, really important sort of pivotal moments in CCP history, where Mao Zedong stands almost completely by himself in his ideas. Like, here are these USSR-backed, really intelligent guys who have waltzed into this Jiangxi Soviet and started trying to run the place. And here's Mao Zedong, who's like ill embattled he's been through it all he's been fighting the kmt for the past however many years he's trying to explain to them the realities of the situation and no one will listen to him and i think a normal person would have just had a breakdown and just called it quits and been like you know what guys you do this by yourself i'm going home sort of thing like i'll see how it works out for you but mao zedong he just never ever gives up and I think that is a big part of the reason why he ends up running the entire country. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I almost want to be an advocate for the great man theory again after listening to you talk about this, Eddie, because (laughs) I usually don't buy it, but you're right. Most people in Mao's position probably would have called it quits way long before he did. I mean, you see earlier too, right, when he is working in the United Front and gets attacked on all sides, like he does take a break. He goes home to... Hunan province, but then he regroups when he is inspired by the revolutionary potential of the peasants. Yeah, he just can't let it go. He's like a dog with a bone, almost. And I would argue he's not really that smart in that he's not like an intellectual type, right? His main strengths, like we talked about, are his organisation skills. He's also very charismatic. That's how he keeps getting all of these people to, you know, he's kind of like a natural leader in that sense. But it's not as if he's, he's not a Lucian, right? He's not a Horsha, he's not a Kangyo Wei, he's not a great mind, but he is just, you know, he's gunning for it the whole time. He's got a vision in mind and he's just, you know, single-mindedly working towards it. Yeah, absolutely. And well, if you juxtapose him with Chiang Kai-shek, Mao is far more charismatic, I would say, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, Chiang Kai-shek does most things just through his wife, Song Mei-ling, because she's charismatic. Yeah, exactly. Song Mei-ling's kind of amazing, but I really, I the listeners know already, but I really don't like Chiang Kai-shek. I am not a fan at all. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the whole syphilis thing. But anyway, um... <laughs> There's all this conflict going on. Mal gets kicked out of leadership positions once again. But in the end, as always, it doesn't matter because the KMT are hot on their tails. And um, so actually it's beneficial for Mao, looking back after the fact that he is ousted from the central leadership group when he is, because later when things go badly, badly wrong, he'll be like, look guys, I had absolutely nothing to do with this at all. Yeah, Yeah, that's actually kind of convenient for him. So in 1934, 
after they've been in the Jiangxi... I can't remember. How long were they in the Jiangxi Soviet for? It was a few years, like five years? Let's see. Yeah, so I think um, the evacuation from Jinggangshan is in late 1928, and the Jiangxi Soviet, I think, is established in early 1929, I want to say. Yeah, and then the fifth encirclement campaign is 1934. So they've been there for five years, and then they have to suddenly evacuate and begin this long march. Right, and this is largely the fault of the 28 Bolsheviks, along uh, <laughs> with um, Otto Brown, who is um, the their Comintern advisor. Um, his name in Chinese is really funny. It's Li De, which literally means Li the German, because he is German. So <laughs> Li De, Otto Brown, and the 28 Bolsheviks. Um, <laughs> Decide that, Sounds hey, like battle warfare, we should do something different. Let's engage the nationalists directly in confrontational warfare. Well, guys, nice thought, but really, really bad idea. Exactly. So they, the, you know, Chiang Kai-shek, he's another one who's very, very determined. I, I don't want to give him any credit, but, you know, he's a, he's kind of like Mao in that he doesn't really have the intellectual grounding, but he's kind he plays off the right place, right time thing. He's got the military backing. He's very, he's charismatic enough to become sort of like an authoritarian leader, get his cult of the leadership going and things like that. So he's got the army really behind him. And the KMT army really does believe in crushing the communists before trying to reunify the country properly. So I think the Fifth Encirclement campaign was just the determination of the KMT, basically, to get rid of the communists once and for all. Yeah. Oh, you have Germans on all sides, right? Because Chiang Kai-shek has German advisors who are telling him about the strategy of encirclements, and then you have a German Comintern advisor as well, who is, well... I would say Chang's German advisors gave him slightly better military <laughs> advice at this point in time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the encirclement campaign takes place. The Jiangxi Soviet is evacuated. And then you get the most important event, arguably, in CCP history. This is the single most mythologized event when the CCP talks about their history. This is this is it. This is bigger than the May the Fourth movement. Yeah, bigger than the May the Fourth movement. It's bigger than you know, the war with Japan, it's bigger than the final war with the KMT. This is it. And the founding of the party in Shanghai is important, but it's not as important as the Long March. Yeah, I think because there were only 100 communists, so it didn't sound very impressive. (laughs) Yeah, not so much. Um, I mean, but then, yeah, how many communists were there? I think there were like 86,000, I think, that, Mm -hmm. and this was not all of the members of the Communist Party. It was just the ones that evacuated. I think something like... 28,000 or something, um, soldiers were left behind, along with a lot of the women and children, who have this, like, massive, massive group. An overwhelming majority of those who are members of the Chinese Communist Party, um, who end up embarking on the Long March. And, well, the Long March is actually a little bit of a misnomer, right? Because there are actually several. It's not like they all stick together all the time. Yeah, exactly. And... They're also also a march makes it sound like they're going somewhere, like they're marching from point A to point B, and that is not what happened. <laughs> yeah, not at all. I mean, they didn't really know quite where they were going. They just didn't want to be exterminated by the nationalists. Um, and it wasn't just the nationalists that were the problem. Remember, this is the warlord era in China. Well, mm-hmm. technically, it's the Nanjing era with residual warlordism, <laughs> but 
Um, China is pretty divided, militarily speaking. So you have all of these provincial warlords as well who are also attacking. I mean, they don't care. They attack the nationalists. They attack the communists, anybody who goes through their territory. So the CCP is up against a lot of different enemies. Exactly. And you've got some details as well about how long it took and how many people died, etc. Right. I have Edgar Snow to thank for this, actually. Um, Red Star over China. So he is, I mean, he's one of the first, if not the first Americans who Mm -hmm. goes to Yan'an. He interviews Mao Zedong, writes a book about it, sells I don't remember how many copies, but a lot of copies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty epic account of Mao Zedong's life up until, I think it was 1936 when Snow interviews him. Snow really plays up the long march, so you can argue that it was Snow who was responsible, at least in the international community, for the initial mythologization of the long march, Mm -hmm. right? So he calls it an odyssey unequaled in modern times. And so after Snow kind of calculates everything that the CCP came up against before they eventually uh, arrive at Yan'an, which, okay, we're not being teleological historians, so they were not aimed for Yan'an from the start. They just kind of end up there. So Snow points out how superhuman almost this march was. says, and I'm quoting from Red Star over China, out of a total of 368 days en route, 235 of those were consumed in marches by day, and 18 in marches by night. Of the 100 days of halts, many of which were devoted to skirmishes, 56 days were spent in northwestern Sichuan, leaving only 44 days of rest over a distance of about 5,000 miles, or an average of one halt for every 114 miles of marching. The mean daily stage covered was nearly 24 miles, a phenomenal pace for a great army and its transport to average over some of the most hazardous terrain on Earth. Altogether, they crossed 18 mountain ranges, five of which were perennially snow-capped, and they crossed 24 rivers. They passed through 12 different provinces, occupied 62 cities, and broke through enveloping armies of 10 different provincial warlords, besides defeating, eluding, or outmaneuvering the nationalist forces. They entered and successfully crossed six different aboriginal districts, etc., etc. So even if this is hyped up, you know, somewhat by his interview by Mao and Mao kind of exaggerates it or whatever. I mean, even if you just look on a map, the distance between Jiangxi province and Yan'an, the fact that they had to walk there and bearing in mind they're carrying all of their military equipment, they're being chased, they've got all of their documents and also other precious things that they've built up in Jiangxi and they've got to carry all their food and whatnot. And, you know, this is the poorest parts of China that they're walking through. So Sichuan province, Guangxi province, and then the western provinces. These are the, as he said, the mountainous areas, the poor areas. They're being chased by the KMT. The Japanese have invaded. This whole, the whole time is just a bit of a mess, really. So it's a miracle, in my opinion, that anyone survived at all. And it wasn't a lot of people. I mean, I know it was, you know, less than 10%, but still, I mean, there is a remnant. Exactly. And the march itself isn't the only thing that's kind of mythologized and used as propaganda by the CCP. There are also kind of individual events that 
took place that are used quite a lot in CCP mythology. Right. Um, so one is at this battle at uh, Luding Bridge, which is in Sichuan province. It's kind of like all the odds are against the CCP in this battle. I mean, on the one side of the bridge across from them, there are, I think there are nationalist troops over there already, right, who yeah. are shooting at them. And then there's this bridge. So Sichuan is very mountainous and there are a lot of gorges. So it's a bridge over this like really deep gorge and they're pretty much going kind of uphill yeah. as they're going across the river because I mean the terrain is not level. And so they're trying to cross the bridge to get to the other side and they're just being shot out the entire time. So um, going back to Edgar Snow, I mean Edgar Snow has a pretty epic chapter in Red Star over China about this battle that takes place yeah. and how it's mythologized. Yeah, but also... It's interesting because later historians, later eyewitnesses, and even I think Deng Xiaoping also says something like, uh, kind of wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, we had all the modern equipment. The other army didn't really. They didn't actually know we were coming. And, you know, we just hype it up, basically, to make us look good. The mythology of it does hype it up a bit. You're right. Although, and this is, well, I'm pretty much just reading from a textbook I used with my undergrads um, by Keith Shapa called Revolution and Its Past. Pretty good overall, although I don't really like the chapter on the Cultural Revolution a ton. So Shapa discusses how um, crossing this bridge was made nearly impossible, also because the planking had already been ripped off of the chain suspension bridge. Yeah. So it's not like they're crossing a regular bridge either, right? You have the planks having already been ripped out, so they're really just crawling across this bridge. One, because a lot of the bridge isn't there anymore, yeah. and so it's like, you know, looming over this really deep gorge and then there's enemy gunfire from the other side yeah i think one eyewitness account said that they had to do that kind of you know that you see those army trainee guys having to like crawl underneath a chain and kind of like pull themselves across while hanging upside down on a chain like a monkey and i'm just like i couldn't i couldn't do that like ordinarily let alone during battle carrying all of my equipment on me after i've just marched like five thousand miles yeah, so there's this, like, raging water underneath, too, right? And then, like, you have, I think, soldiers, I think 20 of them make it across. But then, you know, there's a lot of gunfire going on at this point. So they are pretty much on fire by the time they get to the other side of this bridge. So that story, the story of the Battle of Luding Bridge, that is projected into the future as sort of this major victory for the CCP during its embattled long march. And it's still kind of used, you know, like if you were to read a Chinese student's history textbook, that would be its own chapter about the glories of the CCP during the revolution. Yeah, uh, the Battle of Luding Bridge. So is one of these key components of the long march that, as you mentioned, Eddie is heavily mythologized. And then the other one would be uh, the um, important CCP leadership meeting at the town of Zunyi in mm -hmm. Yunnan province. There, Mao pretty much points the finger at Otto Braun, Lida, and the 28 Bolsheviks, saying, you know, this is your fault, guys. The reason why we are out here fleeing from the nationalists being shot at by 
and these other like provincial warlord armies and encountering this awful terrain and dying by the droves. This is your fault, guys. You're the ones that wanted this strategy of direct, you know, confrontational warfare and not guerrilla warfare. The military disaster that happened back in the Jiangxi Soviet, it's your fault. So actually, most of the group agrees with him. And this is actually the first time Zhou Enlai actively speaks up in support of Mao as well. And from then on, I don't think you have any public confrontations between them ever again. So Zhou Enlai is like, oh, yeah, Mao, you're right. I'm going to get behind you. And this is a moment in which Mao really emerges as the de facto leader. So, right, communication, remember, is cut off largely at this point in time between the CCP and the Soviet Union. So even though the Soviet Union is still backing Otto Braun and the 28 Bolsheviks, the CCP itself now begins to back Mao Zedong. And like you said, this Zhou Enlai, for those of you who don't know, is later on the premier of the People's Republic of China. So he runs... If the CCP and the government were separate bodies, Zhou Enlai would be in charge of the government. But in reality, he was just Mao's number two. And he was also very good friends with Deng Xiaoping. They went to uh, France together during the work-study program. So this is where you get the survivors clique forming. So the people who end up being the first leaders of the PRC up until, I think it's the 80s or the 90s. Like, all of those guys... Yeah. Yeah. So up up until the 90s, these are the guys who are running the PRC. It's everyone who survived the Long March. And they, they're, they're starting to form their own little faction at this point as well. And it, as you say, it rallies around Mao. And yeah, there are not a lot of them left by the time they get to Yan'an. No, there are not. So out of the original 86,000 that embark on the march, only around 6%. So, uh, you know, a little over 5,000, it's estimated, survive. It's very interesting how mythologized this is then, right? Because at the time, it was more of an ignominious defeat than it was any kind of victory. So they end up in Yan'an. Later, the CCP also claims that, oh, it's because we wanted to fight the Japanese all along. You know, we are for, you know, national salvation and we want an end to the Civil War. We should all just fight the Japanese instead. But that is a, you know, narrative of convenience that is crafted later. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, when they get to Yan'an, so just to explain what Yan'an is, it is this sort of mountainous cave town in uh, Shanxi. Shanxi at this point, I think, is the poorest province, like maybe after Gansu province or something like that. Like, this is northwest China. Nobody cares about these people. They live hand to mouth. They always have... They're on the edges of the empire. And Yan'an is just one of these um, traditional sort of cave-dwelling towns. Mao himself actually moves into a cave. And later on, he plays this up a lot to show that he's kind of, you know, down to earth, in touch with the people, willing to, like, go through all the hardships, which is kind of true to an extent. I mean, he does suffer along with everyone else during this period. And yeah, so they're kind of living side by side with the peasants who live in this area. They're very, very reliant on the peasants as well to feed them because they, you know, they are stragglers at this point. They've all, they're all injured, sick, tired. They've got nothing left. You know, their feet are probably falling off at this point as well. So I would say they probably seemed more like refugees. Uh, The only thing that... Yeah, the only thing that they had going for them is that they had rifles um, and they were a hardworking bunch. So, um, yeah, they basically settled into this mountain community and tried to regroup. And I think Mao, again, going back to his industrious, hardworking nature, 
he probably just outworked everyone because while everyone was kind of trying to get back on their feet, he took this opportunity to really stamp his leadership on the party and on everyone who lived in that area. Right. And in retrospect, although it was seen as such a horrific defeat, it provides the CCP with this mythical aura of survival and mm-hmm. you know, devotion to, I mean, not just the party, but later it's crafted into more of a nationalistic narrative too, right? Yeah. We are this committed to the Chinese people. And this is in stark contrast, right, um, to the widespread corruption that is going on in the KMT, which is losing its ideology as it expands on the northern expedition and absorbs all of these warlord armies. Exactly, yeah. So the KMT is becoming... The CCP doesn't even have to demonize them to any extent because the Japanese threat is increasing, but the KMT is almost solely focused on eradicating the CCP. And in some instances, they're actually actively colluding with the Japanese. You know, they're avoiding warfare with the Japanese. And a lot of Chinese people aren't happy about that. Whereas the CCP jumps on this and takes it as an opportunity to be like oh well we'd love to have a united front and fight against the japanese like of course that's what we want i mean they still use this line today right to be like we wanted to fight the japanese all along we were the ones that were fighting them since like ever since the mukden incident which we'll talk you'll talk about later and like when i'm on the podcast again so like the ccp is like we were against the japanese incursions from the very beginning unlike that guy chen kai-shek who was just (laughs) lazy and didn't want to resist and wanted to exterminate us instead so also at this point again because they're in this like really rugged area they don't have any good contact with the soviet union so this is kind of i think you can see this in the interview with edgar snow mal mentions the fact that you know at the moment we can't really talk to the soviet union how convenient but after we've you know gone through the revolution we'd love to have them as our friends and our allies which is actually exactly what happens and that is a much different relationship than the one that the soviet union has been envisioning with the chinese communist party right because Mao is talking about them as equals more than you know mentor and mentee yeah and in reality actually the ccp does rely extremely heavily on soviet aid soviet expertise soviet everything during the first few years um up until the khrushchev incident and the split in the late 1950s yeah before they break up so sad we wanted that couple to last forever they were really couple goals but never mind um oh my gosh some of them Panda posters. I'll have to show you some of them later, Eddie. But they're online of like you know this really handsome Soviet man, this really handsome. Oh, I've seen them. Yeah, there are children in them too. Yeah, it looks almost romantic, but you know it's not supposed to be. They're supposed to just be these really handsome-looking ideal comrades in arms. I I saw a meme that was like the story of the Soviet Union and China is actually the story of an interracial gay couple who get married, have children, and live on a farm. Yeah. Yeah, I love it, especially because I'm studying posters. And so I've seen all of these posters. And even when I see them, I'm kind of like, these guys seem very friendly. Like, I know they're meant to be symbols of nationalism, but it kind of seems like more than that, which is nice, you know, like, in, you know, in, in I doubt they were advocating for the LGBTQ community. Yeah, well, it's all about subtext, you know. <laughs> okay, yeah, so the CCP gets its founding mythology which is convenient, Mao gets his opportunity to kind of isolate everyone. And it's only at this point, so this is like 1936, 1937, it's only now that Mao's like, maybe I should study some Marxism. (laughs) 
He starts with, he writes two really important speeches in 1937. The first one is on practice and then the second one is on contradiction. And before this period, everything that he's written or all the speeches that he's given have been based on kind of his own experience, right? So like the report into the investigation on peasants in Hunan, that is him going down to the peasants, living with them, writing down their experiences and then formulating his ideas based on this. But in the in the mid 1930s, a guy called Chen Boda becomes his like personal secretary, and he's very well educated. He's like from an upper middle class family. He's studied abroad. He's got a really good grasp of Marxism, and he basically works night and day to translate all these materials for Mao to make sure that Mao is up to date on the latest Marxism. And he even writes some speeches and some essays for Mao that Mao basically just publishes under his name. He sprinkles in some like plagiarized Leninism in there as well. Um, so I was so disappointed when I found this out because <laughs> I mean, you know, I had this impression reading these works of Mao is such a great theoretician, but mm-hmm. now I know that a lot of it was just copied. Yeah, like, and also if you like, if you sit and read on practice, it's very boring. But if you read it, so much of it is just direct quotes from original Marxist thinkers, like Engels, Marx. I think one of them on contradiction or on practice actually begins with the line, before Marx, we didn't have an understanding of historical materialism, which we did. But after Marx, and then he just basically rewrites what Marx already wrote. He's basically just transposing Marxism to fit in with what he wants the revolution to achieve. So on practice is basically him using Marx's rhetoric to explain that you cannot achieve your goals on theoretical knowledge alone. You have to have practical experience and then that will inform your knowledge. And it's kind, it kind of goes in this cyclical process. And this kind of comes from his experience with like guerrilla warfare for example. So he thought that direct warfare would work and then he realised that it didn't and from his losses, he real- he was able to formulate the correct manner of practice, which is to do guerrilla warfare instead. Yeah, and this closely ties into his essay on contradiction too, yeah, right? Exactly. Because this is his like practical application of dialectical materialism, which exactly. is quite a mouthful, but <laughs> it's pretty much, you know, things have to, there has to be kind of tension, struggle mm-hmm. between these two seemingly contradictory elements and you have to put them into practice and this is how you move forward exactly. with the revolution. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I always thought it was kind of obvious that Mao didn't come up with this stuff himself because his essays go from kind of very readable, very um, practical, very, you could say almost heartfelt. Like they come from the heart, basically, you know, like this is what he truly thinks and feels to these really uh, technical, esoteric essays that you're just like, where did this come from? Oh, I almost fell asleep when reading on practice and on contradiction yeah. back when I had to read this for a Mal class. Yeah, They're, they are really, really boring and they don't really get to the point until halfway through and then they just kind of repeat themselves until the end with all this fancy words. And apparently I read something that said at this point, because Mal was trying to make his ideology supreme in Yan'an, he would basically corner a lot of people and make them listen to him give speeches for like an hour and a half. And I'm just like, oh my God, I can see that now. <laughs> and Lili San and the Bolsheviks are still around at this point in time, I think. Are they? I thought he'd got, well, he kind of, yeah, I think they're around, but they're not, yeah. 
they're still, you know, trying to collude, trying to do the whole orthodox Marxism thing. But as always, Mao is being more organized. Writing all this stuff because he's not supreme leader. I mean, he has more influence than anybody, any other individual. But there's still those trying to oppose him within the party. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't become supreme supreme leader until 1942. Oh yeah, Chen Duxiu has been purged a long time ago, as well <laughs> as like because Chen Duxiu ends up siding with Trotsky over Stalin, and pretty much well Mao adores Stalin. So yeah. even though they're not in much contact with the USSR at this point in time, like it's clear that you know Stalin is the man. Yeah. So all of the Trotskyites in China end up being purged from the CCP. Yeah, it wasn't going to work out for Chen Duxiu anyway. He was too argumentative. Like, he just argued with everyone about everything all the time. He just seemed really cantankerous. You can really see it in his New Youth articles as well. Like, he used to argue... He argued directly with Hu Xie, even though him and Hu Xie were friends. He was like, oh, Hu Xie's always... Taking university together, right? They were both trying to promote Bai Huan, doing some similar things together. Yeah, but no, he... Yeah, he would start an argument with a rock if he could. So, yeah, it wasn't going to work out for him. Uh, Mal, you know, going back again to sort of wrap it up to the great man theory, Mao was way more charismatic. You know, he knew how to deal with people at the end of the day. And I think that that really stood in his favor. He just outworked everyone. He was very meticulous. He had a goal. He had a vision in mind. Arguably, it's the same vision that he had when he was 15 years old, which is to free the peasants from under the yoke of the warlords. Like that was his dream. And he was going to keep working towards it basically. And that's that's why he was able to man- outmaneuver pretty much everyone. So you would argue, Eddie, that if Mao had not been Mao had not been born when he was as Mao, then he wouldn't have been able to be replaced by another person. Like, the same trajectory of Chinese history might not have happened the way it did. I, I don't know. It's so difficult to say absolutely yes, but I suspect that the CCP wouldn't have survived without Mal. Um, and we'll talk about it more in the next episode when we talk about the um, the rectification movement in Yan'an. But what Mal does basically is he unifies everyone under a single ideology. So first of all, that's not something that the KMT is able to do. They're a mess. But the KMT... Yeah, but they've got the military strength and they've got all the money, basically. And they've got recognition from the international community exactly they're they're actually in charge of china you know largely speaking you know everyone kind of defers to them the ccp are the rebels basically if we're you know if we're gonna go in star wars terms the kmt are the empire and the ccp are the rebels the rebels don't stand a chance this is not a new hope they're not gonna win so my gosh i hear the new movie coming out is gonna be really bad but that's the digression yeah they've all been bad recently but you know can't be helped Well, it can be helped, but it's Disney, so it won't be helped because they're making money. But anyway, yeah, so Mao is able to unify everyone under this single ideology and basically get rid of people who are even slightly divergent. And so what this does is not only does that unify people under him, but it gets everyone on the same page. Everyone is actually believing in the mission of the party. And I don't know if anyone else could have or would have done that because if you look at what the 28 Bolsheviks were doing they were just kind of hardliners whereas Mao was going to people and actually persuading them which is difficult to do and as we see much more successful well 
You've convinced me for now. <laughs> He's shaped by um, his whole life. He he understands what it's like to be an outsider. He understands the importance of being wily and cunning as opposed to being intelligent. If you're in, if you're someone like Chen Du Shou, who's extremely intelligent, but you're speaking your mind all the time, you're gonna be taken out. But if you're someone like Mao, who you know he's had all these experiences of people of being the only person standing alone on an island and having everyone against him, so he now knows how to kind of get around that, how to play that off a little bit, how to build up small alliances where they matter, and yeah, and he sticks to his guns. He doesn't change his mind. He's like the peasants are it, guys. You guys don't see it yet, but trust me, it's gonna be lit. The revolution's gonna go off. It's gonna be amazing. He just, he sees it, you know, he, he envisages it and he goes after it. He's tenacious. So that's what a lot of other people are lacking. So yeah, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> I mean, you're definitely not as far left as, so I've just been reading um, a little book published in 2002, I believe, called Mao, A Reinterpretation by oh, a very yeah. leftist scholar named Lee Fagon, yeah. who argues that pretty much in essence that um, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution had some very positive consequences. Oh God, I don't think I'd ever make that argument. <laughs> like, so I mean, you know, some of the things Mao did are good, but it's like way far left would be like, you know, trying to rescue the latter part of his legacy, which I know you'll talk about later in yeah. this podcast, which is quite problematic yeah. for the CCP. And we're talking about mythology and well, after the cultural revolution, like how do you rescue Mao's legacy from that disaster? Because you kind of need Mao Zedong for the communist party yeah, to be legitimate. Yeah. I think the CCP and any good historian um, have done the sensible thing of not saying whether what Mao did was right or wrong, but just pointing out that Mao was very successful in what he did. So not taking, so instead of saying something like the Great Leap Forward was completely awful or the Great Leap Forward was bad, but you know, there were some good things about it. Like you strip all the, the judgment out of it. You make it completely objective and you're like, you know what? Mao did that and he was able to pull that off and no one else was pulling off that sort of thing. And that's just the fact. Although, another great man theory, so how would you interpret the Great Leap Forward and Cultural Revolution? Because I've heard other historians argue that, you know, some will blame everything on Mao, but you can't blame everything on an individual no matter how great he is, right? That's so true. I don't want to make it seem as if Mao was a scapegoat and we feel bad for him, because these things were his idea, right? Especially the Cultural Revolution, that was his idea. But he, right. he didn't lift his hand in that sense. And I think you could make the argument that the Cultural Revolution was beyond his control very quickly. But with the Great Leap Forward, it's a bit more difficult because he's kind of like Hitler in that, uh, you know, not to- um, Leap Fagon would be like, no, he's not. He's super different from Hitler, but that's yeah. just a super leftist scholar. Sorry, continue, he's yeah. a lot like Hitler. <laughs> he, no, he's not like Hitler in terms of um, like policy or like uh, politics and things like that. But in terms of he's, you know, Hitler never said, to exterminate the Jews, for example, that was never written down anywhere. But he said certain things that led the people who actually, you know, put his ideas into practice to believe that that was what they were supposed to do. That's what the Fuhrer wanted. And the same thing was with Mao. Mao had organized people so that all he had to do was say something and then it would be 
correctly interpreted in propaganda, the propaganda would be sent down to the countryside or to the factories, and then the cadge who worked in those uh, positions, you know, in the counties or in the cities, would then take the action. So Mao didn't technically lift his hand to any of these things, but you can argue that because Mao Zedong thought ran through the minds of every single party and government worker that anything that happened was technically his fault anyway. Oof, that's a pretty heavy load to bear. Well, you know, that's what he wanted. <laughs> I will will save judgment on um, the positive outcomes of The Great Leap Forward when we get to 1958. <laughs> but yeah, I think, yeah, we can leave it there for now. That is definitely two episodes because that is like an hour and 40 minutes oh my gosh we've been talking for a long time yes so in conclusion mal probably fits into the great man theory a little bit of nature plus nurture and experience mal is not a marxist and he definitely is a feminist (laughs) yeah that's about right (laughs) so thank you very much emily for joining me on this episode thank you for having me it's been a pleasure and thanks everyone for listening So in the next episode, we'll be continuing with the discussion on Mao Zedong thought, and we'll be talking about how Mao makes himself the supreme leader of the CCP through his first big campaign, the rectification movement in Yan'an in 1942. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you tune in then.